Today's Bible reading is from Philippians 3, verse 7 to 4, 1. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. That's the God's word. Good evening. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar here, and it's lovely to be bringing you God's word tonight. Let's pray, and we'll look at it together. Heavenly Father, please, we pray, would you stir us with a vision of
of how good, how rich, and how full the life is that is lived wholeheartedly for you. We pray this for the glory of your Son, but also for our good. Amen. Now, Philippians 3, the end of Philippians 3 that we've just read, it really gives us two visions of the Christian life. Both are genuine Christians, trusting in Jesus and saved. But one is saved and, well, settling, to be honest. Kind of, yeah, I've made a bit of progress as a Christian, but, but actually the focus of life is really career, relationships. It's all things down here. They may trust in Jesus, but they're not making any progress. The other is saved but straining ahead. And that's the one that Paul wants us to grip onto. I mean, to be honest, (laughs) some of us here do look pretty rough around the edges. Spiritually, I mean. (laughs) I make no comment on your physical appearance. You're all wonderful. And yeah, who am I to? Anyway, it's spiritually, spiritually, some of us look pretty rough around the edges. You know, perhaps only been Christians a very, very short amount of time or only been taking following Jesus seriously for a, for a few months and still working out some big sins, some huge life changes still going through the, the process. The odd swear word slips out a little bit too frequently and it, we, we look a little bit rough around the edges. But, but you're heading in the right direction. You're making progress. Others of us look pretty sorted. We've been Christians for years and years and years. And most of the the big, obvious, ugly, everybody else can see kind of sins are basically under control. Know the Bible pretty well. But to be honest, it's years since you've made any progress at all. And Paul says to us tonight that where you are right now matters a whole lot less than where you're going. How you're doing as a Christian right now is much, much, much less important than whether you're growing, making progress. He says the hallmark of the healthy Christian is that we are making progress and he urges us, press on, press on. I guess actually uh, the largest group here probably most perhaps have been Christians for a while and if you ask us at this point we think well actually I probably feel more like the first group I don't feel like I'm making much the second group I don't feel like I'm making much progress at all at best I'm plodding that's fine (laughs) Paul's not talking about the speed of progress it doesn't matter how slowly we're moving it doesn't matter how little progress we feel we're making so so long as you're So long as you're looking in the right direction and seeking to make progress, that's what matters. That's the sign of the healthy Christian. And God's word to us tonight, very simply, is press on. Don't settle, don't miss out. God has much, much more for you. If you're a follower of God, he has much more for you than you've yet experienced. God wants much more for you than the life you now lead. So press on for all that Jesus has for you right now, today, but also for the unimaginable joys that he is preparing even now for you in the future. 
Okay, story so far. We're back in Philippians after our, um, our break for four weeks in Ruth. And that was, wasn't that just amazingly encouraging as we saw the kindness of God unfolded over those four chapters in that beautiful story? If you, haven't, if you weren't here or you were away for some of it, do listen to the, the talks on the website. They were just a treat. Such an encouragement to hear of the kindness of God. And between now and Christmas, we're back in the equally wonderful <laughs> book of Philippians. And it is a wonderfully encouraging book. Again, Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that's basically very healthy. And so we get a vision of what does it look like to live a happy, healthy Christian life as a church. He's writing to this colony in northern Greece, a Roman colony in Philippi. And it's a wonderful letter. And he's just told us in the first half of chapter 3, we we read a little bit of it, that he has found Jesus to be worth more than anything. In fact, he's lost everything that he used to value in life. And pretty soon he's going to lose his own life. He'll be executed in Rome. All for the sake of Jesus. But he says, verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Okay, so what do you do when you've found the answer to all life's longings? What do you do when you've finally found the thing that lasts and fulfills? Well, you press on for more of it. That's what you do. You press on for more. And given that verse 17, he tells us to follow his example, verses 12 to 16 aren't just an interesting biographical sketch of a man who decided to pursue more of the Christian life. It's Paul saying to you and me, this is what you want. This is how you should live if you want to live the richest, fullest, most purposeful life possible. Okay, just two points. Firstly, uh, press on towards the heavenly prize. And secondly, be careful which examples you follow. Verse 12, press on towards the heavenly prize. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Now I find this, one of the most incredibly encouraging sections in the whole Bible. I mean, think about what Paul has already told us in the letter of Philippians. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 23, I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. Chapter 2, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service from your faith, even if I'm, I'm being literally killed to serve you, oh, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. Chapter three, we just look. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. They're garbage compared with Christ. And then there's just the constant joy, joy, rejoice, rejoice language throughout the letter. All that depth of knowledge, all that love for Jesus All that joy in the gospel, and yet Paul says, oh, I haven't even come close to arriving at my goal yet. Not even close to spiritual perfection yet. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, 
Why is that encouraging? Well, if the depths of joy and delight that Paul knew already were only scratching the surface of what is on offer in knowing Jesus Christ, well, then the full reality that we'll know in the new creation must be just beyond our imagining. If all that Paul has already that we see here, oh, that's just the start. Imagine what must be further down the road. No wonder Paul's response is, look, I want more. I'm going to press on. Now, it's worth noting that he tells us where he isn't looking as well as where he is looking. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on. So his gaze is fixed on on the glory to be revealed and all the good things that will be given to him when Jesus returns, not on the past. He forgets what is behind. Sadly, it is common that after a few years of joyfully, zealously serving Jesus and, and seeking to live for him, so many of us, well, we just, we kind of plateau as Christians. There's not the same motivation to, to get rid of sin and serve Jesus. We feel like I've, I've changed quite a lot already. And I feel like I've kind of done enough. <laughs> I look around, see most other people don't seem to have moved on that much further. And so we kind of settle. And suddenly there isn't the same motivation and zeal to, to resist the worldly urge to just live for this life. Besides, if we push too much further, we're going to start to really stand out and look horribly different from our friends, and that gets awkward. So instead of straining ahead, we settle down and we start to be consumed more by career progress than spiritual progress. The problem is that you can't look in two opposite directions at the same time. So if I'm looking back and thinking, you know what, I've probably come far enough, that's pretty good, and and I quite like this world, I can't be looking at Jesus Christ at the same time and pursuing him. You just can't. And he tells us it is worth pressing on. It is worth turning away from our achievements in the past and straining towards what is ahead because of the prize. Verse 14 I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Now, what on earth is the prize? What is this prize that motivates Paul and should motivate us? Well, when you recall what Paul has taught in verses 7 to 11, it must mean something to do with what it will be like to have a perfect face-to-face relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't just sound too weird, it's to have the living God the creator of the universe, the one who made you, know you perfectly and to dive into the depths of what it must be like to know God fully. That's what he's pressing towards. And the day will come when he'll know that God and be released from, uh, from bodily decay and sin and temptation. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's what he wants. And so he calls us to press on. 
There's a healthy uh, balance then in, uh, in verses 15 to 16. He says, look, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things that progress is important. And if on some point you think differently, ah, oh, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. In other words, he says, look, there's no real maturity as a Christian unless you're seeking to make progress. But there's a whole heap of other stuff. And you know what? Uh, it's not like Paul doesn't care about belief or doctrine. He writes lots of letters about that very stuff. But he says, you know what? Don't sweat the small stuff. If you're making progress, the other stuff will follow. Just make, you make sure you're making progress and the other stuff will start to work itself out. Very healthy. Press on to win the prize. That's the call. Now, if you've, uh, if you've ever been for a long walk with small children, you will know it is a careful balancing act. I imagine your parents knew this when you were small children. So if you don't walk far enough when you're going for a walk with small children, they return to the house with lots of energy, and that leads to mischief and misery for everybody but the children. But if you walk too far the whinging begins and the end of the walk can start to resemble Napoleon's retreat from Moscow. And you have, and you have to deal with things like this. Now, <laughs> my son's not going to thank me for that, is he? But that is a magnificently grumpy face and a stamping of feet on the beach. It just doesn't work. But there we go. That's, that is the result of walking too far. I warn you, don't make that mistake. However, however, that's enough of his grumpy face looking down at us. There are magic words that you learn as a parent. Magic words that can breathe energy into the legs of even the most grumpy, exhausted small child. Let me share the one thing I've worked out. There's an ice cream at the end of the walk for those who don't whinge. Suddenly, it's like Usain Bolt has inhabited my child and they're storming ahead. The ice cream, the promise of the ice cream, it's incredible the energizing power it has. If it's not too crass, Paul is saying, this is the ice cream at the end of the walk for God's whinging children. That There is a real genuine heavenly prize. I know we're tired. I know the Christian life can be hard. But there is something at the end that makes it worth keeping going. So keep going. Something better than an ice cream will await you when Jesus appears. I mean, maybe he'll give you an ice cream as you enter his eternal paradise. I don't know. Um, he might do, but I think there'll be that and better things. But the, the, the best thing of all in one sense is that Paul also says, you, you don't have to wait for the end of the journey to get the, the Christian ice cream. I mean, as you read through Philippians, you realize already now, for all the sacrifice and hardship, Paul's life is more joyful, more resilient, more purposeful than any of ours. And, and there is the glory to come. So press on. Press on. If you want great joy now and the greatest joy then, press on. Okay, Paul is still urging us to press on in the second section. But his point here is that as we do so, be very careful which examples you follow in the Christian life. Verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, we all need examples to follow. 
It's pretty hard to, to work out the Christian life just actually from reading your Bible. The Bible is sufficient for everything, but we work out what it looks like in practice as we work it out in community. If you just started following Jesus recently, you're working these things out. How how do Christians relate to people of the opposite sex? I understand it's meant to be different from everything that's going on in the world, but what does it look like? Well, you work that out by looking at how other people behave in church. How do Christians navigate uh, career ambition while living for, for heaven? Well, you work it out by looking at other people doing that in church. How, how do Christians build a, a relationship with God in, in the Bible and, and in prayer? You talk to other Christians. You look at how other people are doing it. How do they handle money? How, how do they raise children? How do they decide whether to move house, upgrade? You need examples to follow to work these things out. And that is one reason, actually, why you really need to invest yourself in one church and stay for as long as you can. You, know, you, you can't work this stuff out by watching sermons on the internet, even if the sermons are a whole heap better. You, you need the examples of people who you know who are living for Christ. And you can't do it by changing church every two years. You've got to invest yourself somewhere so you really get to know what it looks like to live for Christ. And the problem is, actually, not every example is a positive one. There are lots of examples out there, but, verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now, what on earth is going on there? And who are these people? I mean, it can't be people within the church at Philippi, given what Paul said at the start of the letter, but it must be Christians, otherwise where there'd be no danger in us following their example. But we know from the beginning of the letter, I mean, chapter one, uh, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have, yeah. okay. No, no, it's not like there's a faction in the church. This is a healthy church, so what is going on? I think it must mean that there are uh, speakers, travelling speakers or groups coming into the church or there are other churches around where there are groups who appear to be Christian but whose lives are definitely not pursuing Christ. Shockingly, they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Do you notice these stresses? They live, not they teach as enemies of the cross of Christ, but they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. His emphasis here is not on the, the books you read or the talks, the podcasts you listen to. It's on the people that you observe and who you follow. They live as enemies of the cross of Christ. What that means, I think, comes out in the three related phrases in verse 19. Can you see? They, uh, they're... Their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is on earthly things. Their God is their stomach. In other words, they live for their appetites. Now that can make it sound like they're just sort of uncontrollable addicts. Uh, They just can't stop eating and drinking and sleeping around. But it might not just be the, the insatiable, uncontrolled, addictive party animal because The the balancing phrase is their mind is on earthly things, so they might actually be also incredibly disciplined people. But the point is they live for the things of this life. 
They satisfy the appetites of this life, this world. Somehow, their understanding of what it means to be a Christian and the model that they set in life, it, it never seems to say no to worldly desires for comfort and financial security. It never seems to say no to sexual immorality and indulgence. It never seems to say no to the selfish desire to just put me and my preferences at the heart of all I do. Never seem to fix their longings on eternity and sacrifice things now for the sake of Jesus and the glory to come. The focus of life and ambition is here and now. And ultimately their glory will be their shame. See, on the final day of history, an awful lot of the things that we invest an awful lot of ourselves in will look very hollow and shallow. There's a, the, the papers these, at the moment, in the last 10 years, and so there's been just this raft of obituaries. Almost every week there are a couple of obituaries of people who lived just magnificently unbelievable lives uh, serving in, in, in the great fight against fascism in the middle of the 20th century. You know, uh, women who parachuted into France and led the resistance movement and men who, uh, at the age of 25, were leading battalions in battle for years. You know, incredible lives that these people led, sacrificially serving. What you never read being celebrated in those obituaries is somebody who devoted 1939 to 1945 on golf. The rest of the free world is fighting Nazism and they're working on their short game. And magnificently, they got their handicap down to three, having had a handicap of 30 before the war. Extraordinary achievement. Somehow it never really gets celebrated in the papers because, because actually to have that as your glory, that is your goal, that is your purpose and achievement, actually looks quite shameful on the day when people are being rewarded for serving the great cause of the, of the age. And to turn away from living for, for Christ and the spread of the gospel that alone can bring people salvation from eternal judgment, to turn away from that and to live for any number of good things that we'll be involved in in our lives, but to make them the focus of life, my career, my self-fulfillment, my relationships, It'll bring shame, not glory. And worse still, actually, the final destiny, verse 19, is destruction. Now, I don't think Paul is saying here, every worldly Christian is going to hell. That's not his point. He's saying, look, all of us are going in a particular direction in life. And you need to know that if the direction of your life is not pursuing Christ in heaven, but if the direction of your life is pursuing career, that's the ultimate thing. If the direction of your life is, is, is making sure that I, have the, that I get the relationship I want, if the direction of your life is, is about me and worldly goals, you've got to know that you're heading away from Christ. You've got to know that the end of that road is bound to be destruction. And there are, well, there are people who say, I'm a Christian been baptized, go to church, attend a midweek study, but their ambitions, their dreams, their loves are all for this world. And if they carry on down that road, they're heading 
towards a very dangerous end. Of course they are. You're heading away from the only source of forgiveness and eternal life. No wonder, as Paul says, there are tears running down his cheeks as he writes these things. He knows what's at stake. And so I think of, I think of some people who used to be at CCM who were just a bit too cool for school. Uh, you know, they call themselves Christians, but they were very clear they're not like those geeky, lame Christians who, who really were going for it, who were a bit naff. And they might have said they followed Jesus, but the focus of life just always seemed to be on getting ahead and fitting in with this world. And, and being a Christian never seemed to have any impact on the drinking or, or the sexual behavior or the career decisions. And sadly, I look at a number of them and they're nowhere now when I see them on Facebook, going further and further and further away from Christ. It's terrifying to think where they're going towards. But you learn a lot about Christianity when you look at how Paul motivates us to not follow those examples. Yes, he warns us. He warns us clearly in verse 19 of the ultimate destiny of living that way. But where he goes to town is on firing our imagination with a better vision, a much better vision of how to live. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. It's another way of talking about the prize that we should be heading towards. He said, look, we'll resist the draw of those worldly examples if we know our identity and our destiny. In our identity and our destiny. It says, living for this world and the appetites of the body, it's not who you are if you follow Jesus, and it's not what you will be. Now, don't live a worldly life when you're already a citizen of heaven, verse 19, verse 20. When you're destined to receive a dazzling new body from God, why would you invest so much in this old body? When Jesus returns, do you realize this? When Jesus returns, the cells of your body will change. You'll be like him in his resurrection body. You'll have a physical body, a physical body, but it won't wear out or get sick or die. I don't know whether you'll need to cut your hair or your nails in heaven. We're just not told that kind of stuff. But we'll have physical bodies that eat and laugh and run, but they won't wear out and get sick. Just as amazing, they won't feel the tug of temptation. That is your destiny if you trust in Jesus. C.S. Lewis put it famously, wonderfully. He will make the feeblest and filthiest into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. If you've, you remember when we looked at Revelation a year or so ago, that uh, John, the Apostle John, kept falling down and trying to worship just the, the angels in heaven. You know, what we will be like in the new creation with our new bodies would make us, as Lewis says, we would probably try to worship ourselves if we could see them. I mean, an awful lot of people try to worship themselves now, but we, we'd have a reason to if we knew what we would look like then. It'll be extraordinary. 
And she says, live in the light of that future. Let that shape how you think about this tired old body now. Let me try to um, help us understand it. Uh, I'm not sure what your dream house would be if you had unlimited budget to just buy and make a house, whether it would be some modernist glass and steel gleaming structure of high technology in the heart of a city or whether it would be renovating uh, a ruined castle with a vineyard in the countryside. I don't know what you would do. But if you watch the, um, the construction shows, yes, I know I'm that sad, but it's a lot healthier than Squid Games or anything else, so don't give me grief. Grand designs, I still love. But they're, they're, you know, they, it's TV, they make it TV. They need some sort of drama for it to be TV. So they always choose people who are wildly unrealistic. It's, so you're going to be 15,000 square feet of architecturally untested house with three swimming pools floating in a gravity-defying thing, and your budget is £5,500, and three months is your time frame. Well, this is going to be... And always what happens is they run out of money, and so they end up living in a static caravan. Um, oh, joy. On the, on the building site. And they spend all their time living in a static caravan, but you never once hear them say, I think I'm going to, you know cut the budget for the dream house so I can spend a bit more on the static caravan. I'd, I'd like to improve the insulation and replace the kitchen in the static caravan. The melamine floors just are not my thing. And the 1970s curtains, the kitchen is just too much. You never hear them spend a penny of money on the static caravan. All the thinking, all the dreaming, all the working is on the dream house. The the permanent forever home, not the temporary static caravan which they're planning on sticking TNT under as soon as they've finished over there. Look, this body, this life is the static caravan. For you who are younger, give it a few years and it'll feel a very apt description. <laughs> Invest your focus and your energies on your permanent heavenly dwelling, not on your temporary earthly caravan. The section finishes with the first verse of chapter four. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. How odd to finish a section about making progress, about pressing on and say, so in summary, stand still. Uh, okay. But it's just, it's two different images that actually work together. In 4.1, Paul is reminding us, we must stand firm on gospel truth, not move on and away from the Lord Jesus Christ. We never move on from trusting Jesus. But chapter three has been reminding us that while we don't move on from Jesus, we should move deeper into our trust in him. In fact, Paul's point is, you are not standing firm unless you're pressing on. You're not standing firm unless you're pressing on. If you like, Christian, the Christian life is a little bit like roller skating up a gentle incline. If you're not going ahead, you are falling backwards. The danger with that image, not so much that you might start thinking the Christian life resembles a 1970s roller disco, which would be, which would be an unhealthy thought, but the the danger is it makes it sound like the answer, therefore, everybody, is try harder. Effort. Come on, pull your socks up, get out there and try harder. A relentless slog from the day you trust Jesus 
to the day you arrive in heaven, utterly exhausted, ready for eternal rest. That's what we're called to. That's not quite the image. Actually, it's more like sailing in a strong tide. The tide tugging you one direction, but there is a strong wind going the other way. And if you do nothing, you will get dragged back by the tide. But the wind has got all the power you need to make progress if you're just willing to set the sail. And God's spirit is that wind. I mean, remember, Paul told us right at the start of the letter, he who began a good work in you, he, God, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Chapter one, verse six. In chapter two, as he called on us to to work out our salvation, he added, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So the answer is not do more, try harder. The answer is, is more allow God to do the work that he is doing in you. Don't resist him. Press on in his strength. This is we close. What does it mean practically? Well, look, if you're a Christian, you might want to think about four areas of life. What is it? How can I think about progress in four areas of life? Uh, how do I make progress in my devotion to God? How do I make progress in fighting sin? How do I make progress in sharing the good news of Jesus with others and how do I make progress in serving others and as 2021 winds down now is the time to to think to chat and to pray with a couple of others about how do I set some good godly goals for 2022 not out of pride that I can do it or fear that I'd better do it or God will be angry but out of excitement at all that God has in store for you out of yearning for the ultimate prize of delight that is at the end of the road and out of faith that to live wholeheartedly for Jesus is the best, richest, fullest, most joyful, purposeful existence for you and me right now. Don't settle. Press on. Let me pray. Our Father God, we... We thank you that uh, you call us to, to press on because there is more. There is more of you to enjoy. There is more of you to discover. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to hear this rightly, to trust that you want to work in us. And so we pray, Father, that we would be excited that you are at work in us. You're not demanding us to do things beyond our strength. You're calling us to enjoy the privilege and pleasure of knowing you at work in us and through us by your mighty Holy Spirit, for your glory and for our joy and our good. Amen.